Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. On today's episode, we're going to be having Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger is one of the leading scholars in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. He's the author of, of 11 books, including The Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited, both of which we will be discussing today. So without any further ado, we want to welcome Dr. Michael J. Kruger to the Good Fight Radio Show. Well, Welcome, uh, Dr. Kruger. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Look forward to uh, having this conversation. Well, praise the Lord. I, I am really, really excited about this because I had read a number of your books now and as well as listened to you communicate this. And one of the things that I found so interesting was actually in the, in the preface here in the, uh, the Heresy of Orthodoxy, where you had a, a quotation from Dr. Daniel Wallace speaking about the book, and he said this, that the book was oozing with common sense and backed up with solid research and documentation. And I could not express something better than that. When I read that book, I just thought, there is so much common sense to what you're bringing forth. And I want I wanted to the audience for the Good Fight Radio Show to hear some of the common sense arguments when it comes to the questions that we have. Maybe we're hearing it on the streets, maybe for a young kid going off to college, hearing it for the first time. Just the questions of what is Scripture, the development of Scripture. And I think the best place to start is to ask Dr. Kruger just what is canon? What is the definition of canon? Yeah, well, that's a word that we throw around in the theological world a good bit, and it probably is different than what most people hear. When they hear canon, they think of the word C-A-N-N-O-N, which is the kind of canon you lighten that shoots a cannonball out. Um, the word canon here just has one N in the middle, and it's a word that's historically used to refer to a rule or standard, and we've used it as Christians historically to refer to what's called the canon of Scripture, and that's just a, a reference to that collection of books that we have in our Bibles, both Old and New Testament. And it's really uh, a question that's unique to Christianity, because Christianity's Bible is, uh, is special just because of the fact that it doesn't have just one book, but many books. And in the New Testament, 27 books. And so anybody who's defending the New Testament's authority can't just defend the New Testament generically. You have to ask the question, well, how was this put together? Who put it together? When did it happen? And why should we think it's normative? Uh, and then on top of that, uh, there's the question of why these books and no others. And so the question of canon is essential to our understanding of biblical authority, and it's a question that most people eventually are going to ask someday if they, if they pause to think about it. You know, in the Canon Revisited book that you have, you know, you, you mentioned there's different definitions. Specifically, there's an exclusive definition, there's a functional definition, and an ontological definition when it comes to canon. So I'd love for you to ferret that out a little bit for the audience who have maybe never heard of these words or even understands what they're saying. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the confusion over canon and a lot of the debate is about definition. Um, people 
think they know what they mean when they say the word canon, but historically scholars have meant different things by it. And once you understand that there's differences in definition, that can explain some of the disagreement. So, for example, one of the things I hear people say a lot is that the Church didn't have a canon until the 4th century. Um, I, I hear that repeated by both Christians and non-Christians, that there was no Bible to the 4th century, there was no canon to the 4th century. Well, it really depends on what they mean by the word canon there. If they mean uh, there wasn't a full, final consensus on all 27 books, you know, everything all tidied up um, and all the boundaries solidified, well, yeah, there's probably some sense in which that finally happened in the 4th century. But if they mean by that, well, there was no Bible at all, or no canon at all, or no, no clarity on what to read before that, that would be a mistaken view. Um, and so what I try to do in my book is, is to distinguish these different approaches to canon. So the idea that you, you only have canon when you have a final fixed closed list, that's what I call the exclusive view. And on that view, you wouldn't have a canon of the 4th century. But I argue that there's what's called a functional view of canon, where, well, what about if we have books functioning like Scripture, couldn't we say we have a canon then, even if the boundaries aren't finished and, and solidified? And the answer is, of course. And if we ask that question, even by the middle of the 2nd century, we've got a functioning canon of about 22 out of 27 books. And so in that sense, you have canon long before uh, the 4th century. And then the ontological definition is just simply recognizing that the canon is something that really God is doing and not humans. And so there, there in principle, can be a canon even before you know about it. As soon as God gives all the books, you have one, even if no one's yet recognized them. And so on that term, you'd have a canon even in the 1st century. So we have to look at it from, from, from all those different angles if we're going to get a full-orb sense of what we mean by canon. Yeah, I think one of the things I noticed, not only in your books, The Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited specifically, but also in some of the, the speaking engagements you've done, is explaining to people that this is a theological discussion, and that a lot of people, when they're looking back at canon, you're, you're going to all these evidences for early canon and so forth, but just getting a, a, an understanding in our heads that really this question is— theological in nature. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it depends on what question you're asking. If you're asking, well, you know, when did this happen? Or if you ask the question of, you know, which church father accepted which books? Well, I mean, you can get into some of the historical data there and, and, and get some answers. But the question people ask is not that most of the time. Most of the time people are question, asking the question, well, how do we know we have the right books? Now, as soon as you start asking that question, that's not a question that you can answer just simply by pulling together a bunch of historical data, because as soon as you ask how we know, well, then you've got to back into the Christian understanding of how we know things, and what's the Christian worldview say about how we can establish God's voice from other things, and so on. And those are all theological categories. And so I argue that you can't really answer the question of canon in terms of which books are the right books unless you have certain theological uh, categories and a certain theological framework in mind. So it's not just simply raw historical study. It requires both historical study and a theological uh, understanding of what, what Christianity teaches. And so you really need both together. And, and the reason that's an important point to make is because most studies of the canon don't include, include the theological dimension. Almost all prior studies of canon have been, have been you know, narrowly historical, and, and that's fine. It's just that I don't think it ever gets to the nub of the issue. Yeah, and I, I just want to ask uh, more on a personal level for you. When it comes to this question of canon and Scripture and us being able to trust this, have you found this to be somewhat of a discipleship question in terms of the, the young men and women that you may be discipling and teaching? Is this something that it has become an issue just in your regular, regular everyday layman coming to the, the question of, well, how can I trust this, this Bible that we have? 
Yeah, my, my experience is that people in the pews, so to speak, are asking these questions. The, pe- the average person in the church wants to know how the Bible was put together, and it, it, it is a sticking point for a lot of people. And it's not just Christians that are asking these questions. Non-Christians are asking these questions when they inquire about the truth of the faith, and so they need an answer, too. And so, you know, I remind people that, you know, this isn't just one of those scholastic questions that academics are pondering. This is a real life question, so to speak, that, 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 that every Christian at some level or another wants to get answers to. And so the, the reason for this is because of the, the way information flows today. You know, and, you know, 30 years ago, most people wouldn't have access to this debate unless you're reading particular scholarly works. Whereas now, obviously, people have access to these debates in all kinds of ways uh, through social media and the Internet and so on. And so it's just out there more. And if it's out there more, then people want, want answers to the questions they have. Yeah, amen. And, you know, one of the things that you brought out, and I, I've heard you mention this uh, specifically in different interviews, was you talked about somewhat of when you wrote uh, these books that you were a little surprised that a lot of the the backlash came from those of the Roman Catholic uh, tradition. But one of the things that you pointed out, I saw, was that a lot of these objections that the Roman Catholics were bringing to you in the books that you've written, both Canon Revisited and Heresy of Orthodoxy, in both cases, they seemed eerily similar to the arguments of, let's say, uh, Bart Ehrman, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So when I wrote Canon Revisited, and it's been more than a decade now, um, I wrote it with a certain conversation partner in my mind, and that conversation partner was mainly uh, critical scholarship. Um, and, you know, there's, there's much to appreciate about critical scholarship, but I was anticipating some of the objections they would have, and I was trying to navigate those. And Roman Catholicism was, was, was a conversation partner in my head and part of the book, but certainly not as a whole. But then when the book came out, I could tell that I'd sort of kicked a hornet's nest a bit there, and they were pretty uh, eager to, to, to argue against it. And so essentially their argument is that, 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 Early Christianity and the canon in early Christianity was was too chaotic, too undetermined, too um, unsettled to trust anything that was happening. And, and in fact, it required effectively the church to swoop in and, and kind of save the day by picking the right books and rescuing Christianity from its confusion. Um, in order to make that point, um, I noticed that these, these, these Catholics were making arguments very much like Bart Ehrman's argument. So Ehrman would make the same argument, which is that it was chaotic, it was unorganized, there was no real heresy or orthodoxy, it was all a, uh, a bunch of competing versions of the faith, and only later did it get settled when certain powers that be settled it. Now, what you, what you find ironically then is that the, the Roman Catholic argument and Ehrman's argument are exactly the same until the very end. And in the very end, the Roman Catholic argument is, well, you have an infallible church that solves it all, and Irma would say, no, you don't. You just have a church, but that's not remotely infallible that sort of solved it. But there's no reason I think these books are special or any, any better than any others. So it's, it's a remarkable uh, parallel, and it's something I've noticed, and I think, uh, and I pointed it out to some Roman Catholics before in conversations, and I think maybe they haven't even noticed themselves that they effectively are making a higher critical argument to make their case. Yeah, I, I found that so fascinating to think uh, such strange bedfellows <laughs> there, you know, instead of you know, coming against the scriptures, uh, you know, in order to prove that, you know, there's no, you know, that we can't have any trust in them. It's coming against the scriptures so that then we can put all of our our trust into the, what they would call the Holy Catholic Church. I always found that very interesting. 
And one of the things I, I noticed, especially when you when you develop the understanding of the self-authenticating model of canon, I thought this was really profound. And I thought, wow, that whole oozing common sense, not only in the heresy of orthodoxy, but also in this book, I felt like what you were expressing here in the self-authenticating model of canon was something that just spoke volumes to me. I was like, well, this is what I believe, but I have never articulated it this way. So I would love for you to to kind of break down what the self-authenticating model of canon uh, is. Yeah, so when someone says, how do I know a book is from God, or maybe more narrowly in this conversation, how do I know a New Testament book is from God? Um, I argue there's multiple ways to answer that question. Um, and, and And the problem is, that that up till now, at least, most people don't think about, I think, one of the most historical ways Christians have answered that question. So if you ask the average person, how do you know a book is from God, and they were aware of the the, the field a little bit, they'd probably say, well, you could probably know a book is from God if it's written by an apostle, or, or at least contains authoritative apostolic teaching, or you could know a book is from God if it's maybe been received and used by the Church. Okay, so these are two sort of things that you look to um, to determine whether a book perhaps comes from God. But what's overlooked in a lot of those discussions is the third category, um, and that is the content of the books themselves. And historically, Christians have believed that you can actually tell a book is from God by the actual content of the book. In other words, the books bear the, the internal marks or the internal indicators uh, or the eternal attrib- internal attributes of a book that comes from God's own hand. Um, and so what you realize then is that you don't need to necessarily look at historical data or authorship um, in order to know a book is from God, you can just know the book itself and, and recognize that this book has God's fingerprints all over it. Now, when I make that argument, that's just another way of saying that, that, the, that the, the books of the Bible are self-authenticating. To say a book is self-authenticating is just to say it bears its own internal marks of its divine origins. Now, when people hear that in the modern day, they think, wow, that, that, would you just make that up? Is that brand new? Where'd that idea come from? And I'm like, well, no, it's not it's not at all something that's new. In fact, the Reformers talk like this a lot, and uh, I think particularly here of Calvin and Owen, but then the Church Fathers talk like this a lot, and I, I cover some of this in my book, too, which all the way back into the early centuries of the Church, the Church Fathers regarded the Scriptures as, a, as an ultimate starting point or a first principle that itself was uh, uh, self-authenticating and didn't need external validation. So this whole idea, then, of uh, an ultimate standard that authenticates itself is not at all new, and I think flows right out of our theological understanding of what the Bible is. So that's the essence of the argument, um, and I, you know, I, obviously I build a whole, whole case on it in my book. And w- one clarification I'll make is, if you believe in a self-authenticating Bible, that does not rule out, and I've tried to make this clear, that does not rule out the use of historical evidences. It just simply uh, indicates that that's not the only option, that you can also know a book is from God from other ways, too. And so it's not one or the other, uh, but but it can be both. Uh, you know, I, and I, I just, I love that you're able to describe that, especially that it, this goes back all the way to the early church. And, and th- I guess this is a great time to transition to specifically talk about the book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, because in this book, it seems like you bring out what is called the Bauer Thesis, but how it has been popularized by the likes of Bart Ehrman and, and those of the Jesus Seminar and, and so forth. And, and you could tell me if I'm wrong on this and, and what, what, I was, what I was basically getting from it, and hopefully you can help me uh, walk through, through it uh, with me here, but that the popularization of this Bauer thesis 
pretty much put all ancient heresy and the orthodoxy that we believe now in terms of uh, what we believe in biblical Christianity on level footing in the early church. Would you say that kind of describes what the Bauer thesis and then the popularization of that thesis have kind of put out there? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. I mean, for those who don't know who Walter Bauer is, he was a German scholar in the early 20th century, wrote a very famous book in 1934 called Heresy and Orthodoxy and and um, in Earliest Christianity. Um, and it is a book that was very uh, groundbreaking in its day. Um, in essence, what Bauer argues is that when you look into the early centuries of the Church and the earliest centuries of Christianity, he argues there really was no Christianity. And what he means by that is that there are only Christianities, plural. All these different factions, groups, and segments, all claiming to be the original Christianity, all with widely different views on all kinds of matters from God to Jesus to salvation, all saying that they are the original real deal. And they're all warring it out to uh, see who prevails as, as true Christianity. Um, not warring it out literally as in physical combat, but theological battles over uh, truth and error. And, says Bauer, only one group won. And the group you call Christianity today, which includes Paul and uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, those are the, the books of the theological winners, the ones who prevailed in that debate. But, says Bauer, why would you think those books are better than anybody, anybody else's book? I and mean, what if another group had won? Then you'd have another New Testament than the one you have today. So what if the Gnostics had won? You wouldn't be reading the Gospel of Luke. You'd be reading the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Mary or maybe the Gospel of Thomas. Um, if you uh, have another theological trajectory that won, then you would have a totally different canon. And so the essence of all that, Bauer would say, is that the canon you have today is just a, an accident of history. It's just the, the book that was produced by the theological winners. There's no reason to think that that version is any more true or original than any other version. You know, I, I, in reading The Heresy of Orthodoxy, as well as you mentioned this uh, quite a bit, as also in Canon Revisited, where you detail how the Old Testament's role in somewhat, I don't want to say debunking, I guess, but coming against some of the ideas that we brought forth in the Bauer thesis, as well as some ideas that we brought forth um, in Understanding Canon— and I'd love to know what the Old Testament's role in relation to the early church that would help aid us in understanding why the Bauer thesis is inaccurate. Yeah, well, Bauer's major claim is, is that the early Christians had no theological guidance, that they were flying blind. They, they didn't have their own canon, and they didn't have any canon or any sort of way to know what was orthodox or heretical. So therefore, they were all just kind of uh, in no man's land. But but what I think Bauer has overlooked, and I point this out in the book, is that, that Christians did have a canon, and that they had always had a canon, namely the Old Testament. Um, and so you have the entire Old Testament corpus already in place, already established, already with a worldview, already with a theological system. So right out of the gate, Christians already had a trajectory and a paradigm, and whatever books they were going to receive into their Bibles would would have to fit with the Bible they already had, with the Old Testament. You can't just say, that they would have accepted the Gospel of Thomas, when the Gospel of Thomas was antithetical to everything in the Old Testament. So this idea that Christians didn't really have a system and were, were sort of able to pick any old system out there just doesn't work, because Christians did have a canon already in the Old Testament. So it was a starting point, it was a foundation, it was a guide, and it would have ruled a lot of things out from the very start. You know, I'd, I'd love to know what you believe is some of the reason that this this viewpoint in modern culture, it seems like the, the Bauer thesis being popularized by the likes of the Jesus Seminar and by the likes of uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, you know, when we look 
at the, just, I'm just telling you, for somebody who's out there sharing the gospel on the streets, I hear these accusations against the scripture coming, as you said, not only from Catholics, but from atheists, from Muslims. And why do you think in this culture, this, this idea of diversity in the, in the early form of Christianity, why do you think this is so popular today? Yeah, well, what I think is going on, and we mentioned this, of course, in the in, in, in the subtitle of the book, is I think you know our modern fascination with diversity and pluralism is is in effect being read back into the historical sources. So today, just looking at it from the modern day, we look out in the modern day and we see groups in the religious world that disagree and are in conflict and have different views. And the in our modern world, which is very pluralistic, says, okay, if you have a bunch of groups that disagree, well, then no one group can be right. No one group would, could know their right, so all, we have to sort of declare all groups equally valid. Okay, so that's what's happening in the modern day philosophically in our, in our, in our sort of postmodern world. Now, if you have that, that framework and you go back in history, it's not hard to, to see how you might end up really liking what you find in the Bauer thesis, because the Bauer thesis effectively is, is pluralism applied to the early centuries of the church, which is, oh, well, look, people disagreed in early Christianity. Look, there are different versions of the faith in early Christianity, which, which by the way, is true. There were disagreements and there were different versions. But the conclusion is the problem, which is, therefore, no one view could be original, no one view could be right, and we're also obligated, scholastically and academically, to declare all views the same, um, and to sort of, you know, put them all on equal equal footing in terms of their validity and authenticity. And I, I find that to be a philosophical view, not a historical view. And this has been my point all along. Someone's free to do that, but don't, don't, don't pretend that's what historians have to do, um, as if we're obligated to follow that certain philosophical uh, way of looking at the world. <laughs> no, that that is so interesting when we think about our, our modern culture today and this idea that diversity is such a good thing, and when it's uh, it is it not always is. And and I'd love to get into a little bit of the historical background as well, because I I mean, are we to believe that the heretics in the early Christian era, the early Christ, you know, early attestation of, of Christianity right after the time of Jesus onto the apostles, were the heretics were they somebody that were you know, very unison in what they believed and not very fragmented, so to speak? Or was it something that was much more diverse than somebody like an, an airman or so would, would say in terms of the heretics? Well, there's different phases here. Um, you know, it, let, let, me, let, me, let me say, first of all, that Bauer was partly right, and I think we need to acknowledge that. So sometimes I think Christians can make the opposite mistake, where we, can, we, can, we, we assume that if God is in something, then, then, then early Christianity must be this pristine perfect movement with no problems, disagreements, or factions. And we have this sort of overly sanitized vision of it. Um, and that's, that's also false. And so we need to recognize that it was, a, it was, a, it was not an easy time for the church. And it was, it was, there were factions and, and, and divisions and splits. Um, and we see some of this even in the pages of the New Testament. And I, and I would venture to say, to answer your question, that there's probably a lot more division and splits than people, people recognize, the average person recognizes. Um, and when you read the New Testament, you even see these even in, 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 in the days of, of the first century. Um, a lot of Paul's letters are dealing with heresy in his churches. We see, of course, that's happening when John wrote his letters at the end of the first century, even Peter. Um, the heretics were kind of all over the place. Um, and it tells you that whenever you have truth, you're going to have opposition to truth. Um, and that shouldn't shock us uh, or surprise us. And then as you move into the second century, it doesn't get better. It actually arguably gets worse. Uh, there's even more heretics and, fa- and factions that pop up. However, in the midst of all these, these, this diversity, and it is there, there is a core, there is a, a central uh, sort of trajectory of, 
of Christianity, what patristic writers often call the great church, where they recognize that even with all these little factions on the perimeter, there is some core historic views that, that, that seemingly Christians have always held from the beginning. And I think these can be sussed out and seen in earliest sources. So yeah, there's diversity, but there's also unanimity around a core, and, and, and that can't be overlooked. And it's that unanimity around the core that gives us a, 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 a degree of assurance and confidence that, that there's something real called Christianity that we can trace back to the beginning. Obviously, in reading the Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited, in both of these, you discuss not only the covenantal nature in terms of the documents that we have today, and, and I'd love to to get into that a little bit more, but I'd also love, love to know about what the early church believed specifically about the documents that they were receiving, maybe the letters of Paul, the Gospels, and so forth. What was the early church's reception of these documents? Yeah, so some, some people out there have a perception of canon that kind of goes something like this, where they think, okay, Paul wrote a letter, um, it was just a private correspondence where he just gave his own private views, and some people received it, and then, and then some people received it and, and really liked it and started copying it. And then years went by and generations went by and then more people got it. And then maybe a hundred years goes by and the church starts, you know, circulating it. And then finally someone says, you know what, these, these letters by Paul are great. I think we should make these scripture. What do you think? Okay. All in favor say aye. And then there's a vote and then we have a Bible. Um, and so the idea behind that whole narrative, even though someone, someone wouldn't put it as crassly as that is the idea that the authority in these books is something granted to it at a later time. So they're not written with authority. They're, 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 they're infused with authority by some later church body, presumably some council or, or what have you, even though we have no real reason to think that that's what councils did or were doing. But people have this idea that these books were written with one, one purpose, but then they were sort of, in one sense, hijacked for another purpose later. The problem with that whole paradigm is that, A, it doesn't work historically, but it also doesn't work theologically when you read the books of the New Testament themselves. And I've argued extensively in both the books you're referring to and elsewhere, that when the New Testament authors wrote, Paul in particular, they wrote with awareness of their own authority. And not only did they write with awareness of their own authority, but the audience would have obviously picked up on that and would have received these books, if they received them properly, as books that were to be received as authoritative, as the, 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 the uh, voice of an apostle. Um, and so you could argue that these books um, would have been received as authoritative documents from the very beginning. Um, and not didn't have to wait until some later vote uh, or church council just by virtue of Paul's apostolic office. Um, and if that's true, then suddenly, you know, our, our understanding of canon looks very different. Now it doesn't look like something artificially imposed on books at a later date. Now it looks like something that may have grown up naturally internally to the books themselves. And that's, that's of course, the very argument I think that needs to be made. Yeah, you know, and one of the things, and I know you've, you've written about this in Canon Revisited, specifically about the definition of canon and the definition of Scripture, and maybe even expressing it because something like, hey, you know, Paul talks about other letters he wrote. You know, we have First and Second Corinthians, but in terms of just letters to, the, to those in Corinth, he obviously mentions these other letters. So were those letters not Scripture then, if he wrote them, or not part of canon? Can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, so I argue that, um, that Scripture and canon, most of the time when we use the term Scripture and canon, they're, they, they overlap, uh, meaning they're, 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 they're interchangeable to some degree. Uh, the only exception I make for that is the so-called lost letters. Okay, where apparently someone would have written like Paul, and we, we know he did this, wrote under his apostolic authority and wrote letters to other churches that we don't have. 
So would those letters have been inspired? Well, sure, just like the letters we have. Uh, would, could, could we call those letters scripture? I think we could. I, you don't, I don't think you have to use that word depending on the, what you mean by that word. Um, but yes, they would have been inspired writings like the inspired writings we have currently in our canons. So in that one situation, you'd have a book that was scripture but not canon because um, they didn't make it into our final collection. Um, but, but I think, you know, leaving that aside, the nomenclature more or less overlaps. And the reason I think we can leave it aside is because we, we just don't have those books. We, we know they exist in principle, but they don't exist now. Um, and when we talk about, you know, how we analyze a book and, and try to understand whether it belongs somewhere, we can only analyze and look at the books we actually possess. So I don't spend a lot of time dealing with the lost letters of Paul or presumably the lost letters of other apostles that may, may be out there. But they do exist in principle, and I think we could probably say that they were inspired. All right. I think that's a good enough answer for, for a lot of us here. And, you know, one of the things I also—you bring out in both the heresy of orthodoxy as well as canon revisited— is this idea of the covenantal nature of both the Old and the New Testament. You show some of the parallels at the, at the time of the Deuteronomical text, the text, at least the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And specifically, you talk about how there's blessings and curses, and you parallel also the same thing in the book of Revelation as well. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this this idea that these documents that we have, when we look at the Old and New Testament or Old and New Covenant, that they're they're covenantal in nature, it seems. Yeah, um, I think this is an overlooked fact. I talk about this in a number of different places. Um, you know what we what we forget because of our English Bibles, we call these testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. But the but the word behind that um, testamentum in the Latin, which comes from diatheke in the Greek, is really the word covenant. We're talking about an old covenant and a new covenant. And I argue, of course, and I don't think this is a, a, a difficult case to make, that the, the whole existence of a new covenant is born out of the pre-existence of an old covenant. In other words, the, the whole idea of covenant documents would have been in the water, so to speak, for the earliest Christians because they were Jews, and they were used to having books that were considered covenantal documents. Um, and we call something a covenantal document. What we mean is that it's a document that testifies to God's relationship, his arrangement, his treaty, if you will, with his people, and they would have known this through the Old Covenant. Now, here's what's interesting, and I point this out in my book, is that in the ancient world, if you said that you had a covenant, it was actually a physical object. Um, covenants weren't just ideas or pie-in-the-sky concepts. To say you have a covenant is to say you had a written text, a, 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 a written document at some level um, that testifies to the terms of the arrangement. It was like a, like a treaty text. We know this from the, 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 the function of A&E treaties in, in Hittite worlds and beyond. Um, and we know that that's certainly what was true in the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai. When God made a covenant with, with Israel Mount Sinai, he wrote it in stone. He wrote it down. It was a physical text. So I make the argument then that if you were to tell somebody that we have a new covenant, um, and uh, this, of course, is the language Jesus used himself, that he inaugurates a new covenant, what would they have expected there to be? And the answer is they would have expected there to be a new deposit of written text. So if God's going to start a new covenant, they would have expected him to give new covenant documents. And so I argue, I argue that for one simple reason. It shows you that the idea of a New Testament is not foreign to the early Christian movement. It's not something that had to be imposed on it. It's not something that's, that no one had really thought of. It's something that would have, again, grown up organically and naturally from, from within. And I think there's signs in the New Covenant writings that show this, and you mentioned one of them. Even, we even have the covenantal curse at the very end of Revelation, which is neither add or take away from these writings, which is exactly the same kind of language we have uh, in the Pentateuch. And so that 
kind of thing, and there's other things, shows I think you're dealing with, with more written documents testifying to the terms of the new covenant. Yes, we are talking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, the author of The Heresy of Orthodoxy, as well as Canon Revisited and a number of other books. And we're so excited to have him here today. And I thought it'd be nice to just transition a little bit over the next, you know, 25, the last 25 minutes of our show today and just go through maybe some common arguments that you might hear. And one of the great things is he'll be giving you these, but I'm telling you right now, if you're someone who is just trying to learn how to share this and articulate it on the streets, these books will benefit you. And I would encourage you to get both of these right here. And also, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher of any kind, if you're sharing and discipling young men and women, these are things that you really need to know about. And even though he'll be giving you great answers here, when you want to have a full scope and understanding of the material, I do really, really, really highly recommend both of these works. These need to be on your shelves and being opened and referenced because I think they do they do an excellent job with understanding the canon of Scripture, with understanding why we know what we know in terms of the books that we have. And so I want to go through some of the arguments, one of which, though the first one I'll give you, is the last argument that I got when I was just out on the street sharing the gospel with a Catholic. And one of the things that they brought up concerning the doctrine, they asked me if I believed in Sola Scriptura, and of course uh, I do. And so they asked me, you know, uh, this question, and one of the things that they said specifically was that the Holy Catholic Church is what gave you the table of contents in your Bible. You wouldn't even know what to read. So, Dr. Kruger, how would you respond to someone who would say that to you? Yeah, this is a common Catholic argument. Obviously, Protestants and Catholics have been debating this issue for, you know, a long, long time, 500 years or more. Um, and so we've got a disagreement here about the way we know which books are from God. Catholics would say that the only way you can know which books are from God is from the Church telling you. Um, and Protestants say, no, you can, you can know from the books themselves. Now, there's several ways to respond to this uh, uh, particular argument. One one general observation, just as 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 I think about it, is you know if someone says you can only know that these books are from God from the from from the from the the church itself, I want to know well how do you know that? How do you know you can only know from the church itself? Um, certainly, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that um, because there's nothing in the Bible I'd argue that would suggest an infallible church in the first place. Now, if you say well we know that the, the church is the only place to know because the church told us. Well, now we're back to that again, which is the very thing most Roman Catholics say you can't do, which is have a self-authenticating authority. And this, of course, exposes the real problem here with the argument. They, they say, look, you Protestants would be fine if you had an, an authorized table of content, contents. You don't, so therefore you need the Church to tell you. But I always respond by saying, well, what if the Protestants did? Let's imagine we uncovered a document in the Sands of Egypt that gave us the authorized table of contents. Would that, would that make you satisfied? And the answer, of course, is no, because that document has to be authenticated. And who's supposed to authenticate it? Well, Mother Church. So what you realize is that it, having an authoritative table of contents wouldn't actually solve the problem. For them, you always have to have, ultimately, the Church built into the equation. So what that just shows you is the argument just presupposes the very thing they're trying to prove. It doesn't actually show you the Church is the only authority. It just presupposes that, and then says, therefore, you can't have uh, the Bible in front of you. We would say, on the contrary, we think you can establish which books belong in the Bible through all kinds of other means. Um, and I've already laid those out earlier in this conversation. And what you don't need is a, is an infallible church. Yeah, amen. No, that's that's excellent. And, and one of the things you, you might hear, even as a follow-up sometimes and, and on the streets, is specifically the idea that, 
what if, you know, we're out dig, digging and we're not in Oxyrhynchus, right? That's <laughs> a fun word to say. Uh, we're not out in Oxyrhynchus, but we're out digging. And next thing you know, we have discovered we have discovered this new letter from Paul. We know it's from Paul, without a doubt. So this has to be a part of Scripture. Would it be a part of the canon, uh, Dr. Kruger? Yeah, well, I get asked this question all the time. This may be the number one ranked question I get. You know, what if we found a lost letter of Paul? Uh, and I, I got to admit, I, I go back and forth on it um, in terms of what I would, would say the category is. Um, on one level, I think canon is a foundational uh, document. And uh, obviously, if you found this book in 2021, that it did not function as a foundational document for early Christianity, and therefore it would not be canon. On the flip side, um, if, it is, if it is a genuine inspired epistle of Paul, well, why not? Why would you not put it uh, along with the other books? Um, so yeah, I think it's a curious question. I think it's a it's a it's a little bit of a a a, a, a question that's so hypothetical that you you wonder, regardless of which way you 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 answer it, it doesn't change a lot in terms of our understanding of canon, nor does it change a lot in terms of our of course day to day thinking. But yet it, it it is curious to ponder, and uh, I doubt very much though whether that that'll ever become a reality. Um, but uh, you never know what the sands of Egypt will turn up. <laughs> yeah, that that's right. And so, you know, we get these questions and we're talking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who has authored 11 books. He's done a great job in answering a lot of these questions that for a lot of people are difficult. And as you can hear him speaking, and I love the fact that he speaks very matter-of-factly about these things because he does give you the arguments and tells you what other people leave. But one of the things is I, I love the confidence that he has in expressing this. And once again, the common sense nature of hearing these arguments. And, I, and I'm really hoping you guys are, are blessed by this. And I hope what this will do will get you to want to get these materials to grow even more concerning these questions, because these are really, really important, and these are things that you're going to hear on the streets. And one of the ones that we hear all the time, and I and I find this, you know, I almost feel embarrassed asking the question, but if you are on the streets, and if you should ever share the gospel with a Muslim, if you ever share the gospel with an atheist and so forth, there is this dark, ominous idea that everything was discovered, or not, or everything was decided, actually, at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I don't know if that's uh, because of the Da Vinci Code specifically in this day and age or not. But basically, the Council of Nicaea, for some, they believe that really decided what the books were. They decided that Jesus was God there, I guess. And also they threw out other books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter. So what would you say to someone that was telling you, yeah, you know what, I know that whole Bible was actually decided and all these other ones were thrown out at the Council of Nicaea? Yeah, this is a common argument. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Um, it. It was not invented by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. It was picked up by him from a number of other sources, who knows where. I mean, it's all over the Internet, and it's in a number of different places. And occasionally I even hear a scholar say it, even though there's no historical reason to think that the Council of Nicaea had anything to do with the New Testament canon. So, you know, sometimes things get passed around in, in common popular stories and lore, so to speak, and it gets repeated so often people think it's true. Um, but uh, in this case, it's decidedly not true. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon. Um, and for that matter, I'll add this, the Council of Nicaea was not about deciding the divinity of Jesus, despite the common perception that's what it was about. The Council of Nicaea was about the best way to articulate uh, the divinity of Jesus, uh, over and against the various controversies of the day, um, uh, including, you know, the controversy over Arius' own views. 
So uh, again, it's not as if in the fourth century the divinity of Jesus was a toss-up, and they were like, "Well, we got a fifty-fifty church here. We got to pick something, uh, pick one route to go." Uh, usually, when you talk about Nicaea too, Constantine is thrown in, you know, as the you know emperor who's pulling the strings behind the scenes, and on, and, and and you can see in this whole narrative, it's a bit of what I was saying earlier in the conversation, is that lurking behind this whole narrative is this idea that these things were all the product of human machinations. Um, the product of politics, the product of the accident of history, and therefore we can sort of just relieve ourselves of any concern whether these books are, 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 are valuable or not, because it's all just the part of, a, you know, human plots. And I think, you know, it's a bit conspiracy theory, honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, if someone wants to find a reason to dismiss the, the, the New Testament, I'm, I suppose you could use that reason. The problem is it just isn't historically true. And so if someone cares about what's historically true. That's not how the canon came to be, and you can't, you know, just brush it aside under the heading of it was decided at Nicaea. Amen to that. And, you know, one of the things that gets brought up a lot, and I know I'm sure it's been brought up to you plenty of times, uh, once again, and you go over this quite well, obviously, in the Heresy of Orthodoxy, specifically about these other Gospels, as if there were these other Gospels there at the time of, you know, say the Gospel of John and, and you know, the four canonical Gospels, that we, we look at these Gospels and say, well, you know what, they threw out these other ones specifically. For what reason did, would they throw out something like Thomas, right? If they were just sitting there with these with all these Gospels, maybe even the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, and so forth, they're sitting there with these Gospels, why, why keep the four canonical and throw out those if they were all sitting there at the same time together? Yeah, well, of course, that's the whole problem, isn't it? Is they weren't sitting there at the same time together, whatever one, one might mean by that. Um, yeah, the apocryphal gospel fascination is remarkable to watch. Uh, we, we have a culture that just can't get enough of lost gospels or hidden gospels or apocryphal gospels. And again, there's a conspiracy theory sort of feel to it all, which is that, you know, after 2,000 years, we finally now know the real truth and everything's been suppressed, and, and we finally figured it out. It has a bit of an Area 51 kind of uh, sense about it. Um, but, you know, the truth is usually a lot less sensationalistic than, than, the, than, than those sorts of retellings. I mean, the truth is actually rather mundane, and the truth is simply this, is that we only have four Gospels written in the first century uh, that we possess anyway. Um, and in other words, we only have four Gospels that were written in the, in the century in which Christ lived, and that's the Gospels we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Therefore, those are the only four Gospels that actually have a shot at having an apostolic link, an apostolic connection. Every other Gospel, and your listeners need to let this sit, sort of sink in, every other Gospel that we possess uh, can be reliably dated to the second century or even later. And that includes the famous Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of the Twelve, the Gospel of Judas, and you could go on and on and on. The point is, is that every single apocryphal gospel, no matter what name's attached to it, has no apostolic link uh, because we know they're written in the second century or later. So just that fact alone shows you that there is something different about our canonical gospels. Now that doesn't prove they're true. I suppose the skeptic could say, okay, even even first century gospels can be false, and and, they, and they're right. That doesn't prove it's true. But what it does show you is that if you're going to pick gospels out of the pile, so to speak. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make a lot more sense than Thomas, Philip, and, and Mary, um, because theoretically you'd want a gospel that's as early as possible, but you'd also theoretically want a gospel that could at least purportedly go back to the earliest followers of Jesus. And you only get that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
So the rather mundane conclusion of all that is that the Gospels we have actually make a lot of sense. If you're going to pick Gospels, I, t- I tell people this all the time, if you're going to pick Gospels, which ones would you choose? Um, and, and I think they would have to admit that, yeah, I mean, if, I, if, I, if this is the pile I'm looking at, those would be the four I would pick. And I think historically those are the four that Christians settled on very early. Yeah, I was going to say that with when it comes to the early Christians, uh, you know, the Irenaeuses and, and and so forth, were were they were they someone who who said, hey, maybe these gospels as well, or or did they stick to the four? Well, this is the other remarkable part of the equation is that um, when we look in the early Christian movement, there wasn't nearly the debate over the gospels that people think there there, there would be. Um, if it was a sort of literary free for all, and no one knew what to read, and there were all these different gospels and people couldn't make their minds up, you'd think the early church fathers would be kind of all over the map in terms of which Gospels to read. But as soon as they start talking about Gospels and which one the church receives, it's interesting, they coalesce around Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John remarkably early. In fact, I would argue there really wasn't any meaningful debate about the Gospels. These four seem to be there almost from the very beginning. Um, And our second century sources bear this out. You mentioned Irenaeus. He has four and only four. In fact, famously says so. The earliest canonical list, the Muratorian Fragment, is in the second century, and it was got four, only four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Clement of Alexandria, also in the second century, same thing, four and only four, and on and on you could go. And so this idea that there was this great amount of diversity of choice with Gospels simply isn't true. Now, that doesn't mean that these other Gospels weren't known. They were. It doesn't even mean they weren't used or read, because they were. Clement of Alexandria is a good example of this. He used occasionally uh, Gospels outside our canon, and he got what he deemed to be useful information from them and found them profitable from time to time. But he also was very careful to make a distinction between those other Gospels and the four he regarded as Scripture. Um, the four he regarded as Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were in a, in a, in a distinctive category uh, for him. Wow. And and I think that's—you have, you know, the, the testimony there, I think, is so huge. And so I wanted to switch up. We got it, you know, a little bit of time left. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about something that, that has been common. And it's one of those things, like I said, it, when something is popularized in this manner, specifically Dr. Bart Ehrman, and I believe you even uh, were under him at some point, right, at, uh, at UNC? Is that right? I was a student at UNC Chapel Hill when he was just starting out, and I uh, had him for introduction to the New Testament class. Okay. Um, and it was uh, a, a, a very influential class on me just because, you know, I was a freshman student and and was being bombarded with all kinds of questions I couldn't answer. Um, and that actually uh, is the class that put me on the trajectory of scholarship I'm on today. So, <laughs> so yeah, that was a, a me- meaningful part of my own academic journey, so to speak. Well, that's great. And, and I know you just recently uh, wrote a book as well, specifically about people not losing their faith when they go to college. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, your listeners may want to know that my, my uh, next book is due out April 6th with Crossway called Surviving Religion 101. And uh, it's about uh, helping college students uh, interact with the intellectual challenges they'll face in college, particularly at secular universities. And yeah, I was born out of my own experience, uh, having had Bart Ehrman as a professor, but also just my uh, awareness of story after story of folks going off to college and, and looking for answers to the questions they have. So um, I hope it's helpful for people, and it should be available soon. Awesome. That sounds great. And you, and you can get all, all of his books at michaeljkruger.com, and you can also check out uh, Canon Fodder, which is your blog there as well. And, and excellent stuff on there. I've been reading that for the last six or seven months, and it has just been such be- so beneficial to me. So I, I wanted to get into one of the arguments that Bart Ehrman makes. I've heard this on debates, and it sounds really good. I mean, from his side uh, of view, I guess his point of view, when he says things like there are more textual variants 
in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Should this cause us concern, and what do we do if this is true, and is it true? Yeah, it's a common argument that Ehrman makes. Um, He made it originally back in his, uh, famously at least, back in his book, Misquoting Jesus, um, which was a New York Times bestseller, but he's made it in many lectures and other places as well. Um, and, and really, we're, we're now on to a, a corollary issue that's, that's a little bit distinctive from canon, because canon is an issue of which books. And now, with that argument from Merman, is, there's a secondary question here, which is also important, which is not just bo- which books, but which text. In other words, even if you have the right book, let's, let's say everyone agrees that Mark should be in our, our canon, even if you have the right book, there's the second question, and that is, do we have Mark? In other words, is the thing we're calling Mark the thing that Mark himself wrote? Or is the thing we're calling Mark the product of thousands of years of scribal changes so that what we have now isn't anything like it was then? Well, this essentially is the argument that Ehrman's making, which is that in the New Testament, not just Mark, by the way, but many other books in our New Testament, have so many scribal variations that how could you ever believe that what you have are the words of the original authors? And he'll make statements dramatically like, well, there's more words uh, or more textual variants than there are words in the New Testament. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of things about that stat that's really unfortunate, and I think stats are tricky things, right, because you know they, they can be very illuminating and they can be also very misleading. And I would say this stat is extremely misleading. Um, there's two things about that stat I'll mention that I think take the air out of it pretty quickly. The first is the, is the most important fact, and that is the only reason we have this many variants that we know about is because we have thousands of copies of our New Testament in fact, thousands more copies than any other book in the ancient world. Uh, so right now we have probably somewhere near 5,700 copies uh, of our uh, New Testament writings. Copy is anything from a fragment, this little bitty tiny piece, all the way up to a complete New Testament. Um, and we have, like I said, thousands and thousands of these, more than any book that we know of in the ancient world from that time period. Um, and what's curious about this is that every new manuscript you discover, you, you learn about more scribal mistakes. Um, yes, scribes made mistakes. They were human beings. And if you copied a book, you'd make a mistake too. It's just part of the way the world works. Back in that day, every, every book had to be copied by hand. And so the first thing that's wrong with that statistical argument then is that the only reason we know about these variants is because we have so many copies. It doesn't mean that, that the scribal tradition was unreliable. It just means that every new copy you have, the more variants you can add to the mix. So I often tell my students, what if I only had five copies of the New Testament? How many variants would I have then? Well, not anything remotely close to the number Herman's talking about. So it just tells you that that's misleading. The second thing I would say in terms of response to this is that you can't just talk about the number of, of, of variations. You have to talk about the kind of variations. And it's very uh, tricky to say this because it looks like every variation is the same and it's all over the map, but that's not true. Most variations we have are fairly mundane and ordinary and, and irrelevant to the meaning of the text. And the good example of this is the vast majority of variations are spelling errors, which don't really change anything meaningful in the text. Uh, most of the time. And so you, what you have here is something that vast, vast majority of these changes are, are not meaningful to, to, to the, to the, to the uh, understanding of what the text says. Now, there's more that can be said besides that, but those are two uh, things that we would say in response. And I think once you realize that, then the whole argument really loses its steam. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things, I remember he was in a debate and it was brought up to him that, you know, when it comes to these these variants and so forth, that, the, you know, the Muslim will come to you and say, you know, our third caliph, you know, Uthman, he was able to pretty much give us one text. So we have one text of the Quran, even though that has been proven to be false as well. And therefore, they can have certainty 
you know, in terms of what was written. And so, I, as you mentioned, the five books, would you really want that <laughs> rather? But, uh, you know, we have about five minutes left. So what I, what I would love to, to ask you to do, Dr. Kruger, and, and yes, we are speaking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, the author of not only The Heresy of Orthodoxy, not only Canon Revisited, but a number of other books, nine other books as well. And we, we want to encourage you guys to go check out michaeljkruger.com. And he has a ton of stuff on there, specifically his blog, Canon Fodder. That's one N. Please spell that correctly if you're coming from our Good Fight website over to there. <laughs> but um, go check him out because these are these are great answers to questions. And like I said, we, we've gone all over the map already on this, on this show talking about what a Catholic might say to you or talking about, hey, what about your kid out there? You know, they're taking their first philosophy of religion course or something. What, a, you know, what about if you're talking to a Muslim on the street? All of these things are quite common. So it's not something that we want to, uh, you know, we'll just hide that over on the side and, and nobody will ask that question. These are, these are really, really important questions. So I guess, Dr. Kruger, the last question that I would love to get from you is to simply, if I was coming to you and asking you to give us the best evidences that what I have is the Word of God. What is the best succinct way that you could give that answer to me? Well, you know, uh, if someone says, look, I really want to believe that the books I have in my Bible come from God, but how can I know that they do? I mean, one, one simple answer, and I think it's historically and factually true, and I think is a good answer, which is, well, for 2,000 years, Christians all over the world, led by the Holy Spirit, have settled on exactly these 27 books. Now, that argument should hold weight. Um, yeah. not because the church is infallible, um, but because we believe that God's spirit is at work and that the church reliably responds and reacts to what's already there, what's already true. Jesus made this plain himself. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then we would have confidence that collectively, corporately, that we could have assurance that uh, God's been at work in his church and that these books um, are, in fact, uh, the right ones. Now, when, when people think about what they mean by certainty, you know, you always have to qualify this. There's, there's certain levels of epistemic certainty people demand of arguments that I think are unreasonable, and they don't ever demand of anything else in their life. Um, and so, you know, we make, we make arguments um, that we think are cogent and, and, and reasonable and, 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 and work, um, but someone might have such a standard that unless God writes in the sky all 27 books of the New Testament in the clouds, they won't believe it. And I'm like, well, okay, if you're demanding this kind of miraculous revelation to believe in these books are the right ones, then then I might not be able to help you. Uh, But if you uh, are looking to to hear the kind of arguments that that God's own Word makes um, and the kind of arguments that Christians have used for thousands of years, then I think you have good grounds to stand on when you trust these 27 books. Amen. And we want to thank Dr. Michael J. Kruger for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show. I am just so excited for you guys to be able to not only dig into what has been said here, hopefully replay this, listen to it again, but also dig into the books that he offers. And also you can go on to his website, michaeljkruger.com, and check out everything he has on there, including his release uh, on April 6th of his, of his latest book. So once again, I just want to thank you, Dr. Kruger. You've been a blessing to us. Thanks so much. Good to chat with you guys. God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. 
That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.